Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the HypnoDojo, a place of learning for practitioners and students of hypnotherapy. Get your black belts in all things hypnotherapy as we whip into shape your mindset, mastery, and marketing. Relax, enjoy, learn. Here's your sensei, Linda Campbell. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Hypno Dojo. I am Linda Campbell. I'm the director of the Horizon Center School of Hypnotherapy and the president of the Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators. And I'm excited for today's topic. I'm always excited for the topic. Uh, Last time I did a show, I talked about how PTSD manifests. And for this show, and possibly one more, I've got tons to get through, we're going to be talking about what we can do for a client who has PTSD as hypnotherapists. So let's jump right into the material. Now, the first thing that I want to say, and this can be the case for a lot of issues that the client brings in, is one of the best things that we can do for somebody right off the top is to normalize their response. So I don't agree with the term uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't like the disorder. To me, post-traumatic stress is an adaptive response. If you are in a potentially life-threatening situation, your body is supposed to respond that way. You're supposed to go into a hypervigilant state so that you can protect yourself. This is not a disorder. This is your body doing what your body is supposed to do uh, when you're in distress. The problem is, and we'll be getting into this a little later, the subconscious doesn't realize that the trauma has passed and that you're now safe, so it remains in that hypervigilant state. But even just letting the client know this is a normal response, don't underestimate the value of telling this to your client. I had a client, a young woman who uh, was sexually assaulted by her boss and ended up with all kinds of symptoms that she'd never experienced before. She was having panic attacks, could barely leave her house, was having flashbacks, nightmares. And one of the things that was really distressing to her on top of the assault that she suffered was not recognizing herself anymore. Who am I? Where did this come from? What is this all about? Why am I like this now? So she felt as though there was something wrong with her. And I remember when we first started working together, uh, she would sit and talk to me across my desk and couldn't even look me in the eyes, very defeated, this very kind of slumped over body language. And our breakthrough session, hadn't thought to say this up to that point, was when I actually told her that this response that she's having is normal. It was the first time that she actually looked up and looked into my eyes, and she commented that nobody had told her that. She'd worked with other therapists and um, psychiatrists and doctors. I guess, you know, we in the helping professions just assume the client knows that, but they don't. So that actually helped to resolve a lot of the challenges that she was having. She still had the PTSD symptoms that we needed to work on, uh, but it helped her with her confidence in herself, with her trust of herself. It helped get rid of the feeling, the idea that there's something wrong with her. So that's number one. Normalize the response. Let your client know this is a, a normal reaction to trauma. The next thing that I think is really useful as well, and again, this can apply to any client with any type of goal, is to really 
be conscious of providing to the client what it is they didn't get during or immediately after the trauma. So depending on what the experience was that created the post-traumatic stress, there may be many things that the client was unable to do or unable to receive. Maybe they were not understood. Sometimes people don't understand why these severe symptoms. Uh, Maybe they weren't able to talk about the experience. For example, in the case of somebody who has sexual trauma, often the person who violates them threatens them that if they tell anyone, there's going to be worse issues, right? So they're unable to speak about it. Or maybe the trauma happened before they were verbal, or maybe it's so intense that they have a hard time talking about it. So there may be a reason why they couldn't speak about it, uh, why they weren't able to be believed or be understood or be heard. And so even just giving the client the opportunity to speak and to be understood and to be received and for us to treat them without any judgment or without any shock or without any, you know, any of that emotional stuff they probably get when they tell other people. So one of the very best things you can do for a client, period, is just listen. Create a safe place where they can talk about what's going on for them uh, and be accepted with unconditional positive regard. Okay, the next thing in addressing post-traumatic stress disorder is we need to understand and work with the fight-flight-freeze response. So I'm going to take a little bit of time here to explain. We're familiar with fight-or-flight. We hear that term all the time. What is fight-or-flight? If you are in a situation where you perceive to be there to be some kind of danger, you will go into fight or flight. This is like harkens way back to our caveman ancestor days. It's a primitive response we all have built into us that helps us to uh, flee from the dangerous situation or if we have to stay to protect ourselves. So during the fight-flight response, the blood in your body gets shunted to the arms and legs so that you can run or fight. It goes away from the midsection. So there's an increase in adrenaline in your system, again, so you can protect yourself, so you have that strength and that endurance to be able to run away. So typically, fight or flight are, are our first options. However, if we cannot flee from the situation or we cannot fight back, then our third defense is to freeze. We don't often hear about this one. People hear about fight and flight, but they're not as familiar with freeze. So if you've ever been driving down a a road at night with wooded areas or what have you, and a rabbit jumps out into the middle of the road, when it sees the headlights, what does it do? It stops. It freezes. So it can't fight the vehicle. It may not be able to run away. And also this is a way in the animal kingdom of protecting oneself because a lot of animals see movement. If you don't move, maybe you won't be seen. So people do this as well. Again, we have this primitive response built into us. So if I can't flee and I can't fight, I'll freeze. Now, you'll see sometimes with clients who have had post-traumatic stress events that um, the freezing is very distressing to them. I had a client who was in another country. She went to receive a therapeutic treatment, and during the treatment, uh, the practitioner started to touch her sexually. And my client at the time just absolutely froze. Initially, she was like, well, it's another country. Maybe this is what the treatment entails. It's a different language. It's a different culture. I don't really know. Um, But as the treatment, (laughs) I use that word generously, as the treatment progressed, the client became aware, no, this is definitely not okay. But she could not get herself 
up off the table to leave. She was frozen. She was paralyzed. So you hear people who, you know, freeze in the moment. They cannot mobilize themselves. And again, what they think is, what's wrong with me? Why couldn't I escape? And it starts to mess with their belief and their capacity to handle things. Why couldn't I get away? If something happens again, maybe I'm not going to be able to get away. So we want to talk to the client about the fight, flight, freeze and normalize the freeze response. Let them know that, again, that's kind of Mother Nature's way of helping to protect us in a threatening situation. But there's something else that happens here that we can uh, use with the client. So when a person goes into fight or flight, there's a lot of adrenaline in the system in order to protect themselves. When you go into freeze, that adrenaline is still in the system. Remember, fight or flight are the first two options. If you can't flee or fight, you go into freeze. By then, the adrenaline has already started coursing through your body. So when you fight or flee, you have an opportunity to work that adrenaline out, right? You're running away. You're pushing away your attacker. You're fighting your attacker. So the adrenaline is used up. When you freeze, the adrenaline doesn't get used up. It gets stored in the body. Now, in the natural world, if an animal freezes, after the attacker has moved on when it's now safe, the animal will actually lay there and will twitch or vibrate, basically shaking that adrenaline, shaking that energy out of the system. People don't do this. We don't know this is a thing. So the adrenaline gets stored in the body. So one of the things that we can do with a client who's got PTSD is explain this whole fight-flight-freeze thing so they understand the freeze is normal, so they understand why they have this extra adrenaline in the system, and encourage release of the adrenaline. Now, this may be something that you encourage them to do during the hypnosis session. I had a client who had uh, a near shooting he was shot at when he was in another country and had a lot of this adrenaline in his system and during the hypnosis I explained what happens and I said you know you may just find that your subconscious begins to direct you in finding some way to release that adrenaline maybe shaking maybe vibrating maybe there's something some action you can take out there in the real world and he just started shaking in my chair, just shook and shook and shook. And so my job, just sit there and let it happen, right? Now, some people might say, oh, that's an ab reaction. Stop it. No, no, no. Ab reactions are not necessarily a bad thing. The body knew what to do. It was getting rid of all of this extra adrenaline. So you might explain this process and encourage the release of that adrenaline, whether it's during your actual session or something they can do on their own, doing something physical, running. Uh, you know, This is why I think they used to make people punch pillows or scream into pillows, that sort of thing. Now, number four, related in a sense to what I was just talking about there with the fight-flight-freeze response, is to encourage the client to complete whatever the thwarted behavior was that they couldn't complete during the actual trauma. So a problem with the post-traumatic stress response is the brain doesn't classify what happened as a past event. So it's still being treated as though it's a current event. If the person, if there was some action they were unable to complete, they couldn't push their attacker off of them, they couldn't run from the situation, they couldn't, whatever it is they needed to do, when you get the client either within their mind, the subconscious doesn't know the difference between imagination and something that's happening in the real world, 
So whether you have them do it in their mind or you have them do it in the real world, when you encourage them to complete the thwarted behavior, it's like the mind now registers that event as being complete, right? As long as they're still, you know, in that freeze position, they haven't run away, they haven't pushed off their attacker, what have you, um, the, the event is not processed as a past event. So you may want to find out what it is they didn't get a chance to do. Would they like to have screamed? Would they have liked to have pushed off the attacker? Would they have liked to have fought their way out of it? Whatever it is, have them do it in their mind in hypnosis or have them do it in the real life. Don't go and attack someone in the street. Punch a punching bag. You know, go for a jog, that sort of thing. So I was talking just now about how the subconscious doesn't classify the event as a past event. So that's number five. What we want to do in hypnosis is help the subconscious to recognize that event as now done. And there's several different ways we can do this. Uh, One thing that I have the client do is I have them imagine the event being played on a TV screen or movie screen. So the classic sort of NLP movie theater stuff. Um, But there's some adaptations I make to it. So I talked to the client about how there was a time before the event occurred when they were safe, um, when life was just humming along as usual. And there was a time after the event when they were safe as well, obviously, or they wouldn't be in your office getting help, right? At some point, the event was over and regular life continued. The problem with the subconscious is it tends to get focused on the event and kind of forgets to remember that there was a safe time before or a safe time after. We tend to focus on the negative, right? Get a report card with four A's and a C. We focus on the C. So to help the client classify it as a past event, I'll have them sitting in the movie theater. We can create some dissociation by also having a version of themselves up in the uh, projecting room watching them watch the movie screen. And then I'm going to have them play the movie through, but I want to emphasize spending time watching the safe time before, whiz through the event really quickly. We don't need to focus on that. They've spent enough time focusing on that. And then really noticing the safe time after. So that's one option. And then, of course, if you know anything about submodalities or NLP, there's also other adjustments that you can make to the picture on the screen in order to help the client classify it differently. Uh, When we dissociate from something, we tend to feel less of it. So if you put the client in the picture, they feel more of the emotion. If you take them out of the picture, they feel less, which is why we have the person sitting in the audience and sitting in the projector room watching the screen. So... If you take the color away, it tends to take away some of the intensity. If you take the sound away, you take away some of the intensity. When my son was younger, he told me that if you watch a scary movie in black and white or without the sound, it's not as scary. (laughs) Absolutely true. Um, If you take the color and the sound away from the picture or add in colors or sounds that are less threatening. Could you make it pastel colored? Would that seem less threatening? Would it seem less threatening if it were only black and white or sepia tones? Would it be less threatening if it had, you know, classical music or uh, funny music in the background? If all the characters were speaking in um, uh, cartoon voices, that sort of thing. So you can also have them modify some of the details of the scenes they're playing through so as to change the way the mind interprets them. Um, Another way that I have the person 
you know, focus on the safe time after and the safe time before is I might have them think about a timeline of their life. And I have them sort of encapsulate the time where they have the traumatic event. So it's kind of in a bubble or a dome. It's separated from the rest of the timeline. And then I have them think about things that have happened along the timeline ever since, things that prove that they're safe, everyday kind of things. You went grocery shopping. You went for coffee with a girlfriend. You took that trip to the lake. You know, whatever they've done since, (laughs) because, again, the subconscious locks onto the event but forgets about all the things that have happened since that you wouldn't be doing if you were safe. So I sometimes have them just go through events in their everyday or events that have happened since in order to point out to the subconscious that we're in the now time, the safe time, and that that piece of your life that's been encapsulated under that dome doesn't need to have an impact on you. And of course, there's no like right way or wrong way to do this. The purpose is to help the subconscious to recognize the past event, that it's a past event, and that they're in a safe time now. However you choose to do that is up to you. Um, when I'm doing the movie theater, one of the things that I do is once they've played through the event on the screen and adjusted, you know, tweaked it so it appears safer for them, is I have them take the film off the projector and put it in the film case and put it on the shelf in the projector room that is labeled past events. So again, it's obvious to the logical mind, but the subconscious is the creative mind when you're taking that film off the projector and putting it into a canister that's labeled past events. The subconscious knows what that means. Now, another thing that we might be working with when we have a client with post-traumatic stress is their worldview changes. So we're humming along quite nicely in our life. Things are going smoothly. I feel safe. I feel competent, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly some life-threatening event occurs, and that changes so much of what you think about yourself and about the world. Now, instead of life is safe or I'm safe, it's, oh, my God, bad things can happen in any given moment. Instead of, you know, I'm going to live forever, I'm invincible, it's I am, you know, just as um, (laughs) vulnerable as anybody else. They might question their own competency. I thought I could handle things, but I didn't know what to do in this situation. I didn't handle this situation well. I, you know, my body betrayed me by freezing up. And so we want to work on um, reminding the client of their resiliency. The fact is, if the client is coming to see you, they made it through the event. No matter how threatening it was, no matter how intense it was, they survived it or they wouldn't be sitting in their chair. So reminding them of their resiliency helping them to become aware of the skills that they have to take care of themselves. Uh, You know, what do they have available to them? Life experience, common sense, intuition, gut feelings. I might have them go into previous experiences that they've handled and kind of look at what tools they used at the time. I used my sense of humor. I, you know, got help or support from somebody else. I was able to, you know, use my self-control or my discipline or whatever to manage that situation. So you might have them thinking about past events, not necessarily the traumatic event, although there definitely could have been skills that they used there as well, uh, to really you know, trust in their capacity to deal with things and recognize the various tools that they have available to it. Now, another part of this dealing with how the worldview changes is, and this really depends on where the client is in terms of how long it's been since the trauma, you know, how much they've processed it, how much they've thought about it, put it into perspective, that sort of thing. Um, 
but making some making some meaning out of it or using it in some kind of positive or beneficial way. So an example of this would be mothers against drunk drivers, right? They've lost their children to drunk drivers and so now they're advocating for, you know, being safe on the road. Um, I, one of my the client that I referred to earlier who was shot at uh, did a project where he uh, spoke to hospital staff about using alternative treatments for dealing with PTSD. So took this terrible, life-threatening, life-changing experience that he had and used it to um, teach, to help other people. So again, it's not like because you have some kind of trauma, you now must go forth with it and do something in the world. But if the person's inclined in that way, if you hear them talking like, I'd like to use this in some beneficial way, or I want to be there for other people uh, the way I had nobody there for me, or I want to help other people so people don't have to suffer the way I did. If the client is, is uh, going in that direction or they're at that place in processing the event, then there is an opening to look at, you know, how might we use this event to improve the world, to improve the situation for other people. Now, one of the big symptoms that we'll see with clients who have had post-traumatic stress is um, high levels of arousal. So I talked earlier about all this adrenaline in the system. You know, if your subconscious, the job of your subconscious is to protect you. Once you have a post-traumatic event, the subconscious is like, oh, no, bad stuff can happen at any given moment. I've got to have that hypervigilance turned on so that I'm ready for anything at any time. And so you'll see these people have like a really uh, strong startle reason response they tend to you know be really hyper vigilant and so there's all kinds of tools and techniques that we can give the client to help them to regulate their arousal to bring down or even put on hold put on um uh don't want to turn it off but put it on reserve that hyper vigilant response so there's a lot of different techniques that I've kind of, I don't know if I've created them or adapted them from things that I've read over the years. Um, I think of them as mine now because they're probably more my own material than anybody else's. But some of the things that I, I do with my clients, one of them I call it rate and breathe. So I have them rate on a scale of 0 to 10 where their level of anxiety is and then focus on taking some nice deep breaths. And then, and you might even add in, you know, breathing in calmness from the room around you or the air around you, and then go back to rating where they are again. If their anxiety is still at a level that's uncomfortable for them, repeat, go back to the breathing. Now, this works on many different levels. First off, when you are coming from your reactive mind, your vigilant mind, your emotional mind, your subconscious, you're not in your rational mind. You're not in your logical state. So by suggesting that the person assess where they are on a scale between 0 and 10 or 0 and 100, whatever, for how anxious they feel, they actually have to use their rational mind to make that assessment. So you're kind of fooling the person, tricking them, to come back into their logical mind and away from their emotional mind. Then, of course, the breathing helps. When you take deep breaths, there's more oxygen in your system, which tends to calm the system down. When you take deep breaths, again, it kind of fools your system into thinking that you're safe, right? Our breathing is directly linked to how we're feeling emotionally, mentally. When we are in a state of hypervigilance, when we're anxious, we breathe shallowly. 
And sometimes people think they can't change their emotional state, but one way to influence it is by focusing on the breathing. If you can get nice deep breaths into your system, then your brain thinks, oh, I must, I must be safe because I'm breathing deeply, right? So getting them to assess where they are in that scale, take some nice deep breaths, breathe in some calmness, go back to assessing is a way to help them to calm themselves down. Another one that I use in hypnosis I call scale of threat. So because the subconscious needs to protect you, that's its primary function, and you've had some kind of threatening event, so it now thinks there are things that could be happening any given moment that you need to be protected against, uh, that fight-flight response can go off at the smallest of things. My client who was uh, shot at that I referred to earlier would start having um, panic attacks, anxiety responses when his son threw a tantrum, didn't want to go to go to school. So obviously, in the big grand scheme of things, this is not life-threatening. However, if you're already keyed up and hypervigilant, even the smallest thing your subconscious can read as somehow being a threat. So scale of threat. I have them again. Imagine a scale that goes from zero to 100. Anything at 100, only 100 is life-threatening. So that event that you had that caused your PTSD, that's 100. The other events in our lives fall somewhere along the scale, and the scale represents how much threat this thing poses. And I have them consider various events in their everyday, the things that are triggering the inappropriate fight-flight reaction, and I have them place it somewhere along the scale. So your son not wanting to go to school, is that 100? Is it life-threatening? Or is it more kind of like a 10 or a 20? Is it more inconvenient or challenging or frustrating, but not necessarily life-threatening? So I'll get them to think of where they would place it along the scale. What is the real uh, feeling here? What is the real word that we would attach to this event? Because it's not actually threatening to your survival. Now, again, this works for a few different reasons. The subconscious is illogical. It doesn't know that, you know, the son not going to school isn't life-threatening. It just goes, oh, my God, something bad is happening. I need to fire the alarms, basically. So by taking time to point out to the subconscious that where it lands on this scale, because the subconscious is the creative mind and understands visualization, imagery, symbolism, it understands that this event doesn't warrant that response. So again, it gets the client to think rationally about where the event, what the event rates, and it communicates to the subconscious um, how much threat the event actually poses. So those are a couple that I, I think I've made up, but then there's other exercises as well. Teaching the client mindfulness, so being able to just be in a calm state, in a very present and focused state so that they're not off worrying about something that's going to happen or dwelling on the past, grounding exercises. People who have post-traumatic stress are often out of body, right? If it's unsafe to be in your body or unsafe to be here, we're taken off. And so just helping them to ground, helping them to be in their body and in this physical location. And there's a lot of different grounding exercises. There's some classic visualizations, you know, imagine yourself with deep or with roots that go deep into the ground as though you were a big tree. Those roots wrap around the earth, um, getting them to feel their body in the chair, notice the boundaries of their body, notice the chair beneath them, anything like that that gets them into their body. 
and exercises to help them be in the present moment. Um, often when people have had post-traumatic stress, again, they're either dwelling on the past or focusing on the future. So getting them to focus on just being here now. And there's a lot of different activities for this. Uh, one of my clients shared with me that she was taught to look around the room for circles. Right? So as long as you can only be in one place at a time, you can be off in your mind worrying about what's coming up or dwelling on the past, or you can be here now. And if you're spending your time looking around for circles, oh, there's one, the bottom of my coffee cup, the bottom of my lamp, you're actually here in the present moment because you can't be doing that exercise and be off somewhere in your mind. Another classic one is, you know, find one thing that you can touch, find two things that you can see, find three things that you can listen to. So getting them to use their senses, again, to keep them in the present. So there's a lot of tools like that for regulating arousal and for helping people to be more associated instead of dissociated. And I think that's all I'm going to be able to get through today. I'm only on item number seven of a list of 15 different things that I've come up with. So we're definitely going to be covering more of this next week. Please tune in again. I've got plenty of ideas for you as to how you can address post-traumatic stress. If you're interested in hypnotherapy training, I do offer both in-person and online classes. The online classes are interactive. I'm recreating the feel of being in the classroom. We meet uh, via Zoom that we can see each other, hear each other. We can go into breakout rooms and have practice sessions that I can supervise. And so you can learn hypnotherapy from the comfort of your own home and have it be just like being in a classroom. My next online class begins in May. My next in-person class in Victoria, B.C. begins at the end of this March, the, this March, this month, March 30th, 30, 31st, somewhere in there. Uh, if you're interested in training, even if you've taken training, a lot of the things in my program you will not find anywhere else. I know my program is more advanced than most of the hypnotherapy training out there. So if you're interested in training, please let me know. If you're already trained and you're looking for a great association to be certified with, check out CASH, Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators. Thanks again for tuning in and have a lovely rest of the day. Okay, take one. <laughs> with corrections with Campbell. No, Campbell. Campbell. The, the, okay. Get your black belt in all things hypnotherapy and never blame.